And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Well, any fan of opera will know that that uh, marks the opening to one of the most popular of all operas, the amazing Tosca by Giacomo Puccini. We are going to be talking today about Puccini's Tosca as it was recently performed at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, one of the great opera companies of the world. And uh, we are going to be, however, talking about that through the eyes of somebody who played a very interesting role in that production. Uh, We're going to be speaking to uh, someone who is a friend of mine uh, from my church, Holy Communion Lutheran Church up in Racine. His name is John Fricke. And uh, I have known John for quite a long time, and he has made it clear to me on more than one occasion that uh, he is uh, a passionate opera fan. But John Fricke took his love of opera a dramatic step further this past spring when he finally, after years of thinking about it, auditioned to be a supernumerary on the stage of the lyric. And uh, his hope was to be a super in Puccini's Tosca, in that production. And uh, lo and behold, his audition was successful, and he was actually on the stage of that opera house, which he had been attending since uh, he was a teenager back in 1971. So imagine the thrill of being on that stage after all of those years of being in the audience for many a performance. And as a matter of fact, in a wonderful bit of of uh, symmetry in this story. The first opera he saw at the Lyric Opera back in 1971 at age 16 was Puccini's Tosca. So it all comes full circle in a really exciting way. And I asked uh, John Fricke if he would be willing to tell the story of his involvement in this production. And as a matter of fact, he kept a journal in which he really kept track of uh, the memorable experiences he had uh, both in rehearsal and uh, on the stage, and uh, actually off stage after performances and rehearsals as well. Uh, all that contributed to making this one of the great joys, one of the most exciting experiences of his long life. So we have John Fricke with us uh, for the next few minutes to talk about this experience. John Fricke, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. It's really a thrill to be here. I'm so glad that we're. Uh, able to do this. I appreciate this uh, so very, very much. I want to mention that you are originally from Chicago and you have worked in Chicago for the past uh, 45 years or so uh, with a company called Dursey, uh, the job you got right out of uh, Carthage where you graduated. So what year would that have been that you graduated from uh, Carthage? Been, yeah, that was 1977, Greg, and I was fortunate to take an interview there. Dursey was interviewing on campus with Dottie Rath, who headed up uh, the department that was doing job searches for students and uh, interviewed. It was the first job I had out of college, and I've been here ever since. Wonderful. And as we'll get to, uh, they were nice enough to be flexible to uh, ultimately allow you to to do this. But (laughs) before we get to uh, your experience at the Lyric, I want to just kind of turn back the clock a little bit to when you were a young man uh, growing up in Chicago. And uh, First of all, my sense is I know you're the father of two very athletic sons, and I think you also are uh, something of an athlete as well. So growing up, was sports a really important part of your life? 
It was. I, I loved baseball, but I was afraid of the league ball, so I it never progressed into anything of organized baseball, but I took up basketball and, and played that a little bit at Carthage into college, which was a thrill. And uh, my two sons, too. One was a basketball player through high school at Tremper, and uh, my other son turned out to be more of the track and uh, volleyball player through high school and a little bit into college. So uh, we're all, we all like keeping in shape. And that can have its benefits. Of course, as it did in this instance. Well, of course, in addition to uh, your love of sports, you also had a love of music and specifically opera for a long, long time. And if I understood from this journal you shared with me, uh, you trace your love of opera to an interesting commercial you saw on television many, many years ago when you were just 11 years old. Explain to our listeners that commercial. Right. So in the family, there was always a little bit of the classical music, especially on one side of the family. My great grand or my grandfather had sang in the opera Theodora on the steps of Soldier Field in the chorus for Ebenezer Lutheran Church in Chicago uh, back in the, I think, 1930s. But no one was ever really big into opera. So I did, I did hear classical music a lot. But I'm sitting watching TV. I was probably nine years old at the time and a commercial comes on the very odd commercial for nato uh and in the commercial was a a carton of 12 eggs and on each egg was painted a face and as the camera and the commercial panned along each face it depicted a historical figure uh good or bad it would have been fdr it would have been hitler it would have been famous people through the ages, and as they did, a famous speech, like, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, or Hitler in a big parade, or whoever it was, as you're going down these eggs. And on the last egg was this picture of a sad clown face, and it was singing Pagliacci, which is a very famous uh, bit of an aria from, from an opera, Leon Cavallo. I was just intrigued by this cheerful clown face and the sound coming out of this, this egg. So I asked my mother at the time, you know, what is this? She says, oh, Johnny, that's, that's Enrico Caruso. He's a famous opera singer. And so I wound up getting that, an album with Pagliacci on it. And that album grew into another album and grew into uh, a uh, Carlo Berganzi album of the complete Pagliacci. And when I found Carlo Berganzi was singing at the Lyric in 1971, I said, Mom, Carlo Berganzi's in town. Can we go see him? And she took me, it was, I think, September of 1971, to my first opera and her first uh, at the Lyric Opera, sat in the upper balcony and watched Carlo Berganzi as Cavra Dossi and Tito Gobi as the great Baron Scarpia. Uh, And it was just magnificent a thrill and we wound up getting season tickets after that for years <laughs> and you have been bitten by this operatic bug ever since so uh i assume you have been a very very frequent visitor to the lyric opera of chicago uh, over the years and and have you gone farther afield as well i mean do you ever for instance go to the opera in milwaukee or even travel to new york city to the met or or has the lyric uh mostly satisfied your craving to attend and experience opera in person 
I have been to a number of operas in different locations, not to the Met. I do hope to one day, and even to Italy, to La Scala, uh, other places. But I have been to the Florentine Milwaukee uh, and have enjoyed some really thrilling performances there. Madama Butterfly, probably most recently, Turandot and others. And uh, it, it's been a thrill there. I've been to Northwestern seeing Puccini's La Rondine. I've rarely performed, but magnificently beautiful opera uh and chicago opera theater um so yeah i I have been to a few others uh mostly regional in the area here right and one thing you mentioned in your journal is that uh you are so pleased that uh that uh your two sons alex and andrew uh, have also uh come to really appreciate uh opera and maybe even uh, grown to love it, perhaps not quite as much as their fervent father, but uh, I mean, but they have been along for this ride uh, all along. That's right, and it's kind of odd. I I didn't force it on them, but uh, at a very young age, they attended an opera. Uh, Alex first for Johnny Skiki, another Puccini opera by chance, and a comedy. And Andrew's first was and a comedy, mm-hmm. right? Unusual for Puccini. And then uh, Andrews was Pagliacci and Cavalleria Rusticana, which are performed together. And they both took to it and were kind of fascinated by it, the costuming, the expressions. Matter of fact, Alex, my youngest son, when he was maybe three years old, his one of his favorite videos was Madama Butterfly, the opera. And my wife at the time could not understand how a kid three years old uh, could want to see that versus Bozo's Circus or something, and she thought I was brain brainwashing him. <laughs> but he just, they naturally took to it. It was really kind of amazing. Wow. Very, very good. We're speaking with John Fricke, who uh, is someone uh, who was uh, born and raised in Chicago. I know John Fricke uh, because we both belong to Holy Communion Lutheran Church, where I'm Minister of Music. And I've known John for many, many years to, to be uh, a passionate opera fan. And as you've just been hearing, he has attended opera a great deal over the years, beginning with his very first opera at the Lyric Opera of Chicago back in 1971, Puccini's Tosca. So fast forward from that, from 1971 to 2021, uh, or roughly (laughs) around there, that you have this notion of wouldn't it be neat to be up on that stage as part of a performance. Uh, first of all, when did that notion first occur to you? I mean, was it quite recently or for some time? Have you thought about this interesting possibility? Well, when, Greg, when I was in college, my senior year, uh, Craig Murdoch's father, Craig had a party at his house in Des Plaines, Illinois, and his father uh, uh, knew how much I liked opera, and he, he said in this, it was probably in April or so of that year, uh, the year I graduated, he said, John, he says, you really should work for the Lyric Opera. And I thought, oh, yeah, that would be really fun. But I, I never, I also was interested in advertising, so I never got to it. Uh, but it intrigued me, and it, I always kept that in my mind of what Al Murdoch told me of, you need to work there. And finally, after thinking, well, I, maybe I can be an usher, maybe I can do this, I can't, I can't play an instrument. I'm not a great singer like Greg Berg here is, so maybe I can do something else. And I thought, what better than to try out to be on stage? Uh, My son Andrew 
has been on stage at Second City and other places. So I thought, well, you know, let me give it a try. I, I probably won't. It will never happen. But I'll, I'll, I looked up online on the Lyric Opera uh, job availabilities and saw supernumerary positions that could be fulfilled for Tosca and other operas. But it worked out in my work schedule to do Tosca. So I decided to try an audition after all these years of thinking about it. And it just so happened that here's Tosca coming up of mm. all operas. Right. Of and of course, years. that's one thing too. It's, I mean, it would have probably been certainly interesting to be a, a, a supernumerary in just about any opera, even one you didn't particularly care for. But to be a supernumerary right. in an opera you loved so much, what a thrill. Uh, did COVID yeah. have any effect on the schedule of all this in terms of, uh, with of course the lyric, like every other opera house in the world, uh, being forced into a hiatus, uh, was mm-hmm. this opportunity in a sense delayed for you because of COVID? Well, I think Tosca, and they were also going to do Cavalleria and, and Pagliacci last year, and COVID shut down the season. But they revived Tosca with, I think, an altered cast, perhaps, and brought it back for this particular season, uh, the 2021-22 to 22 season, of which pretty much 2022 was the bulk of it. Hmm. And uh, that's how that all came to be. But it just it happened, the timing was just amazingly right. Hmm. So what did you learn about how the audition process works for supernumeraries? I mean, what was going to be asked of you or from you in the audition process? Well, that I didn't quite know. And Fred Zimmerman was so helpful in uh, helping me through, you know, putting together a resume and, and what to expect. Uh, uh, a friend, Fred, by the way, was in an opera, uh, The Merry Widow, uh, in a in a uh, title role in that opera. So, and I've known Fred on the trade show front, being a presenter at some of the trade shows at McCormick Place and elsewhere. So he was a been a longtime friend, associate of mine, guiding me through it. And he says, you know, what what to expect is you'll be, you know, uh, they'll they'll offer an evening to come to audition. There'll be a number of people trying out. Uh, it's a little bit of a cattle call. And he says, but you'll find the people there, you know, whether you're successful or not in getting the role, some of the nicest people or the nicest people you'll ever meet in any walk of life are opera people. Hmm. And as it turned out, they certainly were. And on top of it, as it turned out, I was lucky enough to be part of uh, the people participating in the auditions and not knowing what to expect was a little bit uh, uh, of uh, a little nervous, shall we say, more than a little nervous on doing it. But uh, the thrill of being there overcame any jitters, and it was just thrilling to be able to participate in an audition process. Right. It was a lot simpler than I thought. It was, it, it was, very, it was mostly movements, people eyeing you up and down, uh, the... Uh, Things we were asked to do was was very simple because it's and supernumerary is a non-singing uh, role, but with Puccini's Tosca, the opening act, Act One, has a church processional uh, scene at the end uh, with some big music, probably 80 people on stage, 
And this is where the supernumeraries come in bulk, and we walk down the procession in this giant Roman church cathedral uh, uh, to the front of the altar and then kind of separate from there. Uh, it, uh, it's a little larger than Holy Communion Lutheran Church in Racine, but it has similar, <laughs> <laughs> similar characteristics. <laughs> right. And so this would be one of a couple of different scenes in Tosca in which there were supernumeraries required or needed. And of course you probably right. had your eye on, on this highly dramatic scene is maybe a, a cool possibility. And so, yes, for your audition, it doesn't make any sense for you to go in there and sing something, and it doesn't even make any sense for you to read lines because it's non-singing and non-speaking. So they wanted to see what you looked like physically, how you carried yourself in movement and so on, probably wanted to know how you responded to simple direction and so on. And it's interesting, as you were walking away, I mean, down the street once the audition was all done, someone you were walking with uh, said uh, you did great, and he predicted you would probably end up being cast as one of the priests in that aforementioned right. Tadeum scene. And he was right. He, he was. I was amazed. I thought he was just being uh, uh, nice to me, like, great job, you know, pat on the back. But as it turned out, um, I was, uh, I, the, the uh, stage manager said that I would be notified, people would be notified if they've got the role in the next day or so. And when I didn't get notified, I thought, well, of course, I'm not going to get the, the part. Um, it's just you know, your first time chances. auditioning. And yes. In fact, I even remember yeah. when you first mentioned this possibility, I, I remember telling you something to the effect that, and you know, and, and don't, don't be discouraged if this first time out, I mean, a lot of times you have to just get your foot in the door. They need to find out that you're really serious. Uh, and, uh, you know, chances are by the second or third try, but uh, the first try you made it, but they actually, if like maybe four days went by and you had resigned yourself right. to, well, no, I was unlucky this time. And then you get an email. Mm -hmm. And what does that email say? Right. It, it says, uh, John, we would like, uh, congratulations. You are a part of our cast of Tosca. You will be a cross-bearing priest in Act One. And I saw that and I could not believe it, especially after the audition where I kind of stumbled through the, the, the director who was from New York, Louisa Miller, Muller. She uh, was not there in person due to the uh, uh, travel, some travel uh, issues. Uh, so when I was asked, unfortunately picked to be the first to walk and introduce oneself and say what their qualifications were, I had no qualifications other than my love of opera, Puccini and Tosca in particular, some of the people that I'd seen sing the role, and that I was just thrilled to be there. In the meantime, others that have been supernumeraries before there uh, had been, you know, reciting, I've been to, this is my third Tosca, or I've been to <laughs> Madame Butterfly, Carmen, and Andrea Chenier, or I, I've been to La Boheme. They had a significant amount of training. And when you mentioned the COVID before, I'm sorry, I didn't really answer it, Greg, but uh, in thoroughness, but COVID went, uh, despite what was going on, uh, there were, uh, the Lyric Opera was able to complete the entire uh, set of all of the Tosca performances and uh, thorough checks and health and safety regulations, but 
they did a magnificent job for not only the cast, uh, but for the audience themselves. Hmm. Uh, so it was like full speed ahead, and it was just great that they could were able to do that. Hmm. We're speaking with John Fricky, who just had the thrill of a lifetime by serving as a supernumerary in the Lyric Opera of Chicago's production of Giacomo Puccini's Tosca. And John Fricke was chosen to be uh, one of the priests in a uh, magnificent procession scene that ends Act One, the so-called Tedeum. And uh, so he was the very first priest entering this procession, uh, carrying a cross. And uh, it was a thrill for me to be in the audience for one of those performances and to <laughs> see, uh, see John Fricke on that stage. So uh, according to your journal, your next time back at the Lyric then was, uh, after the audition on the 19th, was to come back on the 28th uh, for wardrobe. And one of the things that you describe is how incredibly exacting this process was uh, in terms of how many measurements they took of, in a, nearly every single corner of your body. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, just describe how different this was from just you know, the measurements one gets when one, you know, is ordering a suit. Oh, I was just absolutely amazed. I didn't, again, didn't know what to expect. I only had Fred Zimmerman's, you know, acknowledgement of how great the people were at, at the Lyric and in opera in general. But uh, I went there at a prescribed time. It was on a, a Friday afternoon, and I was there for probably an hour. And this is just me. Uh, but I go up to the seventh-floor wardrobe, Maureen Riley, who is the wardrobe director, meets me and about three people, other three other people uh, are all around me right this way, sir. And look, look me over, measure. They get the costume out of the priest costume, which was uh, a very elaborate, heavy material, red and gold uh, priest robe uh, with a cap and shoes it was uh, magnificent, I believe. I don't know that Franco Zeffrelli designed them, but it was used in one of his productions before. And uh, so you put this wardrobe on, uh, this, this costume on, and they, tr they start fitting it. The length it has to be so precise down to the fraction of the inch. Uh, your arms, they measure your arm length, but then they say, bend your arm, you're carrying a cross, we're going to measure your bent arm and the angle that that is bent and get that right so that the cuff sits correctly on your wrist. <laughs> uh, doing multiple measurements, I believe by the time I walked out, there were 40 measurements, some of which I never heard of before. <laughs> uh, I've heard of girth, nape to neck, uh, shoulder blade to shoulder blade. I mean, it was just um, a, a long checklist of things. But again, two, three people just kind of swarming you <laughs> like you would be a Hollywood star. Right. You and said at one point. measurements for something. Right. You said, I felt coddled. I felt like a star, treated like a king. And something else yeah. you said, too, that I thought was interesting at, is that you you uh, you left and then somebody came after you saying, oh, we forgot a couple other things. And so there were still more measurements. And then you left yeah. and then you'd forgotten something. So you had to go back. And, and that last right. time, you're just walking in because by that point you have a Lyric Opera of Chicago badge and are 
essentially right. a, 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 a something of an employee. And uh, you said it was right. just the most amazing feeling to, in a sense, be able to just come and go as you pleased. I mean, what a feeling right. for you after uh, a half century of attending the opera there to suddenly have a different, <laughs> a whole different relationship with that great company. Right. It felt like home. It felt so comfortable. Uh, I felt like uh, this was meant to be. And I was just so thankful for the Lyric Opera to allow me to, you know, realize that dream. Hmm. It was just amazing. One interesting matter is that I believe shortly before the audition, you uh, injured your knee, maybe in a pickup basketball (laughs) game, I don't know what, but uh, did some damage to one of your knees. And somehow the question came up about whether or not you and other supernumeraries in this scene might be asked to kneel, as one sometimes does in church. And it sounds like that was a bit of a source of worry for you, at least for a little while. Oh, my Lord. So after the, uh, I think it was uh, the first rehearsal, or maybe it was at the, uh, during or at the end of that, uh, uh, at, at the end of the auditions, uh, Bill Walters, who was a stage manager, uh, said, okay, so I just want you people to know that there are some scenes that will require kneeling. So if any of you has a problem with kneeling, please let me know. And I'm going, and, and, and there were chuckles. And <laughs> of course not. I mean, kneeling, big deal. And I'm going, oh, no. My, my torn meniscus and my stress fracture that I just had gotten a few weeks ago, and I'm going, oh, no. Well, I didn't know I had it at the time. It turned out to be that. And I go, oh, no, i got to get this taken care of. I got an appointment at North Shore uh, University Health System, a large hospital system here in Illinois, immediately. Uh, got a, I got an appointment. And, again, I told them my plight. And they also treated me like a star. John, get in here. we got an appointment at 10 o'clock in the morning tomorrow. Got in there right away diagnosed the issue, uh, got me on a plan for recovery and rehabilitation, and everything that they did worked because I had no issues. No one would have known, but thank God uh, I got that taken care of. And as it turned out, you know, kneeling, Greg, isn't the easiest thing to do as you get older. <laughs> right. uh, and you know, some, a couple of the guys uh, when there was the kneeling scene, had a, a little bit of an issue. So they decided to scrap some of that, uh, some of the kneeling that was going to be done uh, uh, in the in the uh, performance, and mostly just, okay, stand here and do this. Uh, but it turned out, everything turned out okay. Fantastic. I thought it was interesting that uh, when you arrived at your first rehearsal, this would be on February 22nd, you learned very quickly that you had an understudy. (laughs) You, a supernumerary who does not speak a line of dialogue nor sing a single note of music, had an understudy, which I thought was really, really interesting. And then uh, the director, Louisa Miller, came to you and asked you a question uh, in terms of what you would be comfortable doing. Explain to our listeners what her question was to you. So the beginning of the rehearsal for our particular part uh, Louisa Miller is looking at all of us. There's about 17 of us in the procession, in what was to be the procession. She looks, and then she looks at me, and she walks up to me, and she says, You, are you comfortable leading the procession? And I go, 
oh, in my in my mind, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, and I says, sure, of course. Not having done this before, and I'm going to be the first one in this Roman church leading about 15 acolytes, priests, and the cardinal of uh, Archbishop of Rome. I'll be the first one in leading the guys in. And I go, yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Wow. But, yeah, it was quite a thrill. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just going to fast forward here for a moment. Uh, I'm not sure at what point you have you first had uh, a cross or crucifer put in your hands to actually carry. I suppose fairly early on in the rehearsal process, you were given something, uh, if not the what right. you actually carried in in the performance. But how large right. an object ultimately were you given to carry in performance? How heavy was it? How how taxing was it physically uh, to be carrying that? Sure. So in this big room, which is an eight about eight hundred or eighty by one hundred foot room, twenty five foot ceiling soundstage with bits and pieces of scenery around, they have all the props. And in this prop cart was about, oh, I would say, eight crosses. Uh, they, these were on poles, large crosses, probably like uh, two feet wide, three foot high, and the pole itself was probably another, oh, five feet and so I, they said, just pick out a cross, and we want you to do your processional. We'll show you what to do and how to walk. So I picked one out, and Ed Garicki, a fellow Carthaginian, as I found out, uh, from Carthage College, same year I went there, uh, picked out one. And we were the two leading cross-bearing priests. He was in the group of acolytes right behind me. Hmm. So one, the, cross uh... was fine with, the cross was fine with primarily wood, and at the second rehearsal, one of the assistant stage directors go, John, I don't like that cross. Here, here's my favorite. Take this one. And I picked it up, and it was a, a quite heavy, full metal cross with the crucifix, Jesus with the cross, entirely metal. And I am glad I lifted weights because I needed it. Mm. This thing, I can't tell you the poundage, if it was maybe 30 pounds, but you're holding this pole with a cross on top of it, which is top-heavy, and it's 30 pounds, let's say, roughly, and it is, you're up in the air with your arms up near your face, and you're holding this entire thing five feet above your head. It was, uh, uh, it was you have to be strong. <laughs> no kidding. So one cross-bearer is a former basketball player from Carthage, the other a former football <laughs> player from Carthage, and there That's you are right. trying to look as graceful as possible uh, in this very dramatic scene. We're talking with John Fricke yeah. about his experience as a supernumerary in the Lyric Opera of Chicago's production of Puccini's Tosca. One of the things that uh, I imagine you could never possibly have anticipated is that you would end up striking up a very warm, close friendship with the baritone who was entrusted with the role of Baron Scarpia, who would essentially be the villain of this piece, the man who is in love with the title character of Floria Tosca and is willing to go to just about uh, any ends uh, to have her for himself. And uh, entrusted with this uh, role was a talented baritone from Argentina, 
Fabian Velos. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your first encounter uh, with, uh, with this singer and the kind of friendship which sprang from that first meeting. Yes, this was amazing. So in the first rehearsal we had with, with the singers, uh, it just so happened that Baron Scarpia and Spoletta, his, his top henchmen, sat with us supernumeraries on one side of the soundstage. Tosca uh, and Tavardasi sat on the other. So um, Fabian comes in and Spoletta, and they sit down in a couple of chairs next to us, and Fabian had a backpack, and when his role was to get up and do his singing, um, you know, he left his seat. And this man, Fabian, was uh, the appearance, the deep-set eyes, the Argentinian look, very sinister and menacing, as Baron Scarpia would have to be. Uh, he, he would frighten children on stage during rehearsal uh, and yet joke with them afterwards, and they were all put at ease. So he had this a way about him that could be very intimidating and yet so enjoyable and warm out of character. But I decided when I had gotten done with my part of the rehearsal that he was in uh, part of the act of the scene, I sat down and I took his chair. It was the only one left. When he got done with his role, he comes up to get his chair and I'm, I, I stood up and I says, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Veloz, I would never take uh, Scarpia's chair. And he laughed and he says, oh, that's okay, John. Uh, uh, I'm just leaving right now. I'm done for the night. So the next rehearsal, uh, before the next rehearsal, I thought, I'm going to do a little something here. And I made two signs uh, that I could put over the chairs in our rehearsal room. And one said, this seat reserved for Baron Scarpia. And the other one said, this seat reserved for Baron Scarpia's backpack. And I put in parentheses, mochila, which in Argentine or in Spanish is backpack. So (laughs) Mr. Veloz comes in and he sees this and he begins chuckling right away. And he takes a picture of it. And I believe he sent it to his family back in Argentina. And I said, uh, uh, Baron Scarpia, I just want to let you know I would never take your seat again. Here you go. And he goes, oh, this is so funny. Thank you. And he shook my hand. Spoletta, Rodel Rossell, comes up to him and he says, what's this? How do you write? And he said, <laughs> look at this, in his Argentinian voice. Look at this. Mochila. That means backpack. That's for my backpack and that's for me. <laughs> and... Uh, we just struck up, started striking up a friendship and uh, would meet periodically after the performance. We had some gatherings we called the Martini Club that uh, he, which there was only one of actually, as it turned out, due to the COVID and everything else, precautions that needed to be taken. But um, uh, we did, uh, at, at the end of Tosca, at the very end of it, I did have a chance to share a couple of uh, beverages together, adult beverages together at a place down the street. And uh, he will be back in Chicago, I believe, in two years and hopefully many times because he's a tremendous singer, a great person, uh, and I can say just a uh, very dear new friend of mine mm. that uh, 
is really amazing. What a thrill. And especially because you certainly went into this anticipating all kinds of excitement just being on that stage, but could never have imagined in a million years that you would end up befriending uh, one of the leads in the production. And uh, I mean, what <laughs> right. a what a marvelous uh, surprise uh, for you. In fact, you describe that one occasion when uh, he was able to uh, join you and others uh, in the in the chorus dressing room for the so-called Martini Club, and uh, you 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 say that uh, after others had kind of wandered off, but the two of you were still talking, and there you are sitting, and you can ever so ever every so often would kind of glance into those long mirrors that are in that dressing room, and you can see right, right there the reflection of you and Fabian Velos talking together. I mean, as if, you know, to confirm what was probably hard for you to believe. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't want to look too too much, Greg, because to look, I would have been just overwhelmed in seeing what's happening. But it was just so great. I, I decided to get Fabian. I was looking for a bottle, something from Argentina, because he was in Chicago for so long uh, by himself. His family wasn't able to travel with him. And I thought, maybe something that would remind him of home. So I, I went to, I found at Benny's Liquor Store in Chicago in Lincoln Park, they had Tracal, which is the only Argentinian liqueur that was around. There are wines, but not liqueurs. Uh, so I got this and brought it up, and I had a little card made out, uh, this bottle reserved for our beloved Baron Scarpia, Mr. Fabian Vilos, and can only be opened by him. So when I brought Fabian up to the room and I announced to the uh, members there, ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure to introduce uh, to the club uh, our Baron Scarpia. And there was applause, and I said, we have something special for you. And I showed him the bottle, and he says, John, I never had this before, and I love the sign. Can I have the sign? I says, you can, this bottle is for you, and you can have the sign. Uh, he says, well, we need to break open the bottle. So he did. Uh, he says, first drink is with no ice. And so he poured himself a drink, and then he poured me a drink, and he says, this is good. I've never had this before. And uh, we then engaged in uh, a uh, conversation. And like I said, Greg, just during that conversation, looking in the mirror, it just seemed so unrealistic, but it was just the beginning of a great friendship. Hmm. And, uh, and he had so many things in the, in the camaraderie that was developed in that club, shall we say. Uh, Fabian said, you know, I travel all over the world to opera houses. And he says, coming to Chicago and having the people here uh, welcome me like this and have the camaraderie with, with the cast, with the supernumeraries and others that are here, the chorus, he says, was just so warm. And Chicago is so much different from many other cities. I've never experienced anything mm. like this. So. It and was I, a thrill for him. I remember in my uh, my time at the Lyric back in the mid '80s that that is something that many artists would remark upon that that the Lyric was uh, had a remarkable family like atmosphere and a real sense of community and warmth that uh, again is not always present in other opera houses and in other parts of the world. Uh, as I read your journal, it was so exciting to kind of follow the process where you are at first in um, a rehearsal room and then a rehearsal room and a rehearsal room and eventually on the actual main stage of the lyric, but still with just piano. 
and uh, and then sets and costumes and then eventually orchestra but then there's no costumes and it's only yeah. maybe by the the 9th of March and dress rehearsal that finally everything is in place and even an audience there I mean uh, not a right. paying audience but an audience of guests to uh, experience all this and I should think just that that journey as this production in a sense slowly took shape bit by bit layer by layer it had to be so thrilling to you to be part of that and to see that process from the inside right and while uh, i felt uh you're on the a world stage you cannot mess up while there was there should be pressure on that you rehearse so much the detail that louisa muller for example went through of john when you get to this point you'll turn just take a real deep breath, take your time, go slow. This is a very formal procession. Walk slow. And with, you know, having the church background, as you and I have, Greg, you more so, but walking slowly and bowing at the altar with this heavy cross. Now I'm bending over with this 30-pound cross that's five or six feet above my head with all the weight at the top, making sure I don't fall over, and then come back up and walk to the side. And then seeing the layers of this beautiful, grandiose old opera house with the lights uh, and ribbons of balconies as you go up to the, like the sky. It was just uh, an amazing sight. And looking out and seeing Maestro Kim, our great conductor for Tosca, uh, in the pit with, with the orchestra, it was just uh, just amazing, amazing sight from seeing it from the stage after sitting in the audience watching the stage for 50 years. Hmm, of course. And uh, opening night is March 12th, then there's March 15th, March 18th, March 23rd, March 26th, which is the performance that your two sons attended, Alex and Andrew, who had the time of their lives. Uh And then April 3rd, you mentioned that by this point in time, COVID had really hit the chorus and, uh, Mm -hmm. and, a total of 19 members of the cast of Tosca were out of commission because of COVID. I should think that was so scary because of, among other things, the very real possibility that the whole production, they might have to pull the plug. I mean, as which has happened certainly with plenty of Broadway productions, for instance, and other stage productions when COVID gets hold and begins spreading like that. But fortunately, uh, Every single production, every per- performance of Tusk at the Lyric was performed when it was supposed to be performed, one way or another. Right. With, with fewer in, in the chorus, but my uh, hats off to the Lyric for their dedication to pursue the artistic, ele- uh, 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 artistic uh, success of that opera, as well as uh, uh, another opera that was going on simultaneously with Tosca, so part of the people that uh, maybe were out were part of Tosca and part of the other cast, but still they went through with it, took extreme safety precautions. Uh, everyone turned out to be fine, uh, nothing serious, and uh, they just did a great job of controlling it and managing a very touchy situation, and it turned out fantastic. Hmm. Closing night is October 10th, and... Uh, Act one finishes out, and then you make your way, uh, I think, out into the opera house to watch acts two and three. 
uh, right. you know, of this opera that you loved so much that you'd seen 51 years before for the first time <laughs> as a 16-year-old. And then many of yeah. you go out for drinks afterwards, including the Scarpia, Fabian uh, Veloz. You are out with him for several hours and uh, having uh, just a wonderful time. And somebody mentioned, uh, maybe after the fact, that actually very, very seldom will a principal singer in a production join in that kind of after-performance frivolity with chorus members or supernumeraries. So that was something kind of rare that had occurred in terms of the level of friendship you had with this gentleman. Yeah, it it just goes to show you how, and as you mentioned too, alluded, the lyric is maybe so different from other opera houses, the the sincere friendships that can be developed there uh, and are allowed to develop uh, you know, it, it had never happened before, I guess, but uh, Fabian felt very comfortable with the situation. It was his last time in day in town. He was leaving to fly back home to Argentina the next day, and he didn't want to miss it. So there were about uh, oh, 10 of us that went out uh, to a place down the street and uh, had great conversations of not only family, uh, about the lyric opera, about opera in general, specifically specifics about Puccini himself, about the opera Tosca, very interesting conversations about his, you know, take on how things are performed, his, his particular interests in opera. Uh, it was really interesting to hear. By the way, here are a few seconds of Fabian Velos as Scarpia. Not uh, at the Lyric of Chicago. This is from a performance done for the Rome Opera. Just for a few moments, Fabian Veloz as Scarpia. Just a few moments of the Tedeum that ends Act One of Puccini's Tosca with uh, Fabian Velos. So, John Fricky, do you hope to be back on the stage of the lyric uh, in another <laughs> production at some point? I, I certainly hope so. When uh, Lucy Lundquist up in wardrobe uh, did all the multiple measurements, or one of the people who did said, John, you're just starting a second career. We'll, you'll be back and we'll see a lot of you. And I said, Lucy, I hope you're right. And I certainly intend to uh, pursue that that career for a long time. And it's something that I think uh, age has no limit on. Uh, there are certain roles that they need uh, anyone from children on up to, I believe, the high priest, the main emperor, I should say, in Turandot, or Turando if you prefer, I think is 100 years old. Yes. I- I've got a few years to go <laughs> to reach that. So I I think that might be my my last goal is being the emperor in Turandot. There you go. And, of course, you have to sing if you're the emperor in Turandot. So uh, oh, that's I something else. that rules me out. Never mind. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? But in the meantime, I am so glad that we could have this conversation about this thrilling experience that you had Uh, as a supernumerary in the Lyric Opera of Chicago's production of Tosca. And we should say that uh, when the Lyric put out a a short uh, promotional uh, video, if you will, 
there you were for a few seconds in it, uh, your, your proud and uh, majestic form uh, carrying the cross uh, at the beginning of the Te Deum. What a thrill. John Fricky, thank you so much for making time in this uh, busy schedule of yours to uh, be part of the morning show today. And I wish you the very best, including more happy experiences on the stage of the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a thrill to be here. And as they say in Tosca, visse d'arte. <laughs> I live for I live art. I live for art. <laughs> very good.